This is Dr. C, and I'm stoked to welcome you to an episode of Christory the Podcast. When history is told by Christine, the good old days, and even the not-so-good old days, will make you nod your head. I'm glad you made it to the party. Let's do this. Wishing you welcome again to Christory, where history rules and it's always an adventure, at least the history that we explore here, because we leave the boring stuff in the beaten track to someone else. This is Dr. Christine Contrada, and thanks for tuning in. Are you ready to head to Paris? Yes, Paris is always a good idea. But first, I need to kick it back to Brooklyn for a moment. In Christory's last podcast, we celebrated Independence Day in the States with the history of the 4th of July hot dog eating contest in Coney Island, New York. The show went on despite a thunderstorm delay that caused the NYPD to clear the area of dedicated fans who refused to leave, in part, I imagine, because they were wearing huge foam hot dogs on their head. Joey Chestnut won his 16th mustard belt by eating a whopping 62 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Who knew an all-you-can-eat contest could be so polarizing? But we do live in an age where personal opinion is king. So comments on social media ran a full spectrum from Joey Chestnut is a true American hero, a great American athlete decorated with more titles than some of the most celebrated athletes of all time, to the this is the most repulsive display of American gluttony imaginable, and I think I'm going to puke. Thanks for the memories, Coney Island. This week, we moved the spotlight onto Paris and the French Revolution. So from hot dog buns to baguettes, but sticking with the red, white, and blue color palette and wishing you a happy Bastille Day, as we English speakers call it, or as the French call it, the national holiday. It became an official holiday in 1880, 91 years after the storming of the Bastille, to commemorate a violent event did cause some concern, rather, for example, than the signing of a declaration. So no hearts and flowers, but it's a powerfully symbolic and quite bold event. The French people rose against tyranny and launched the transition from monarchy to a republic, and that's the reason for the season. Often we grow interested in historical topics for personal reasons, and your historian host over here is still remiss that I didn't take some French in high school, in large part because of our French teacher and her amazing accent. She sounded like she was straight off Jerome Avenue in the Bronx. That was named after Winston Churchill's grandpa, a New York native, and for New Yorkers it's more that it's a point of some kind of a pit of traffic hell. Thanks to said French teacher, the choir of accents wafing out of the French class that sat catty-corner to our underpopulated Latin closet of a classroom was true poetry. Luckily, when you teach European history like I do, you spend a lot of time making up for lost time with the French. And to us Latin students, Paris was a tiny Roman town called Lutetia, To the French students and to Western civilization warriors, it's the city of lights. Paris, the most visited city in Europe, is the stage for us today. And since we like to keep things interesting, but always historically accurate here at Christory, I'd like to lay the groundwork by saying that it's fake news that the young, foreign, unfortunate for being completely in the wrong place, 
at the worst possible time. French queen Marie Antoinette ever said let them eat cake. She simply never said it. Enlightenment heavyweight Voltaire used the phrase in one of his treatises, and it seems to have fallen on Marie. The cause for the mix-up would be anti-monarchist propaganda, hard at work, trying to make her look like a Kardashian living it up in Versailles while Parisians went hungry, and then throwing her under the bus long after the French Revolution was over. Marie Antoinette was a scapegoat and the subject of some pretty unfair ridicule that was often dripping in misogyny based on things that really had nothing to do with her. Too much of popular opinion about Marie seems to have been spread by a crowd gulping haterade. So in keeping with the situation, I can't give you cake, but I can promise you bread. Bread and revolutions go together like drunk and disorderly. History shows us time and time again that a hungry population is more often than not on the edge of being a disorderly population. Bread in circuses was a means of pacifying discontent and diverting attention away from social or economic grievances, kind of like a dog getting distracted by a frisbee. Not everyone falls for it, but many do. As with many things, ancient Romans had this down to a science. Bread and circuses, as a phrase, comes from a description written by the Latin poet Juvenile, not the 90s rapper from New Orleans. This Roman poet of the late 1st century CE was around as the Roman Empire was falling into serious economic problems, and the unemployment and landlessness had caused desperate people to flood into the capital city. And one way to pacify the mob and to keep it from being an organized revolt was to stage games and to give people food. By throwing two things at the problem, it worked to a point. And as Juvenile noted wisely, these were people who had once upon a time bestowed military commands. They had held high civil offices. They ran legions. And everything else now restrains itself but they eagerly hoped for just two things, bread and circuses. The bread he refers to was most likely the free grain dole that citizens of the capital were eligible to collect. And the circuses were public spectacles, like gladiator games in the Colosseum or chariot races at the Circus Maximus. Can you encourage people to trade away political power in exchange for food and entertainment? In history, pretty much yes. I, for one, would be pacified to a point with pizza and Mets tickets. But yeah, this is only going to stop the mob to a point. And in France, the young, shy, unimaginative Louis XVI was not so great when it came to understanding the desperate population beyond his bubble at the Palace of Versailles. And doing nothing certainly didn't work when there was a revolution brewing. So Bastille Day and the storming of the Bastille on July 14th of 1789 marked the beginning of the French Revolution in a sense because it was the first armed conflict to roll out the revolution, similar to the way that Americans conceptualized Lexington and Concord in the context of the American Revolution. So for the French, by the time they got to storm the Bastille, The revolution was already philosophically rolling around in their minds, 
and leadership had already risen to the top. In this case, the National Assembly, which was led by the Third Estate, was already formed. And the Third Estate was fed up with not having a fair say over the king's economic policy. So in anger, they wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen to serve as a model for human rights fit for the Enlightenment because it guaranteed basic rights to all French, well, men, but that's a story for another day, regardless of their social class. The Third Estate was a feudal social class, that means it's medieval in France, that was not the aristocracy and not the clergy. So the Third Estate was huge. It was most of the French population. And as you can imagine, even the rich and powerful amongst them was tired of being at the bottom of the political totem pole. The Third Estate demanded limits on the king's power, and they claimed that they rule by right of the French people. Of course, king like Louis XVI, who believed he ruled by divine right, I mean, I imagine that he thought, oh, that's rich. Why don't you get lost with your body politic? Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were in pretty bad shape when the Bastille was stormed, as their young son, who was heir to the throne, had just died days before from tuberculosis. When the revolution rolled out and hit the streets in Paris, it became explosive as a champagne cellar. And yes, champagne historically was known as the devil's wine because it used to explode regularly and send glass shooting at you like shrapnel. The Bastille was like an exploding champagne bottle. It was just the start. In October of the same year, a predominantly female crowd of marchers went to Versailles, which was the king's palace, to demand that the price of bread be lowered. This set the path in motion for the execution of the king and his wife. Now, we're focused on the Bastille, but why roll out this revolution by storming the Bastille? In large part because it was symbolic. It was a large medieval fortress built in 1357 during the Hundred Years' War, and it was built to protect the French against the English. It had eight 30-meter-high towers which dominated the Parisian skyline. It was being used to house a handful of political prisoners, and only seven as it was basically being decommissioned by the time of the Revolution. But if you're pissed off at the king, you can make a spectacle of releasing said prisoners within the backdrop of the Middle Ages. And nobody does kings like the Middle Ages. And more importantly, there was gunpowder in the fortress. Because you don't want to fight a revolution. You can't fight a revolution sans firepower. You won't get very far. And the revolutionaries wanted bread. And they did have grain stores in the Bastille. And think about the levels of Bloom's taxonomy here. You need food, your basic survival, before you can think critically and clearly about the end game of a political revolution. So bread before gunpowder. This revolution got nasty quickly. The prison governor of the Bastille refused to acquiesce to the unruly mob, so they beheaded him, and they carried around his bleeding head on a spike. Subtle. But despite that proverbial shit show, 
A London newspaper reported that, and I quote, a national revolution brought about in a period so short has no parallel in the history of the world. Although fatal to some, the lives that have been lost in this great accomplishment are, you know, inconsiderable. If nothing else, I'll give the newspaper the fact that it was at least a hopeful projection. Not one to be outdone with his quill, Thomas Jefferson, who was Minister of France at that time, was on the ground in Paris when the Bastille was stormed. He wrote a 12-page letter with his own hand to John Jay, Secretary of Foreign Affairs, on July 19th. Jefferson also had a hopeful tone, noting, "'Tranquility is now restored to the capital.' Shops are open again. People are resuming their labors. And if the want of bread does not disturb the peace, we may hope for the continuance of it. Wrong. And yes, sometimes Jefferson is wrong. But for this great Francophile, it was hope. And Jefferson knew that it was all about bread. Both Jefferson and the British ambassador have some interesting source material about what happened. They wrote home many times, reporting of the number of revolutionaries killed, but how it was greatly exaggerated and that the crowd was unhinged in the spirit of vengeance. For the Parisian mob, they had dealt with a monarch for far, far too long, and they simply had no more patience for it. The nature of the French mob had long been ferocious. If you want to read a lasting and perfectly pessimistic English-language view that pulls no punches around the nature of the hungry Parisian mob, read Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, which was published in 1859. Now, Jefferson and other supporters of the Revolution would sing a very different and far more pessimistic song once the reign of terror dropped, the French Revolution like a toaster into a bathtub, because close to 20,000 heads would start rolling off the guillotine. But I digress to a story for another podcast. Bread riots are not a new thing, and they're not an old thing. And I hate to tell you if you're riding the keto diet wave, but history doesn't support your diet. For us, it's the price of gas. When the price of gas goes up, we get wild. For the French in the 18th century, as with most of human history, it was the price of bread. On the economic edge, women would protest in bread riots if the price of bread became unfair, and then they would seek to force bakers to sell bread at a moral price rather than the much higher market price. For example, in Paris, in a suburb east of the Bastille, in July of 1725, French women rioted over the cost of bread going from 30 to 34 cents in one day. This wasn't all talk. Almost 2,000 people, mostly women, gathered through rocks to drive away the king's guard. And then they proceeded to loot bakers' houses so that they could take the flour and throw it into the gutter to show their displeasure, along with stealing silverware while they were at it. This information comes from a chronicle written during the reign of Louis XV, so it predates our very unfortunate Louis XVI. 
And then there were the flower wars, which were marked by more than 30 riots across France in the spring of 1775 because of, you guessed it, the rising price of bread. Bread typically costs more than half of a worker's salary, but anything more than that and they completely lost their tempers. Bread actually made up three quarters of the working class diet in French, and fear of famine had become an obsession. The French were way too dependent on a single crop. The Flower War happened soon after the unfortunate Louis XVI became king, so basically the French hated him coming out of the gate. And he made a huge mistake by putting a laissez-faire, that means a hands-off guy, in the controller general spot who thought regulations stood in the way of the natural order of the economy. Then Mother Nature was like, hold my Bordeaux. And there was a really crappy grain harvest, which caused that hell to break loose. It calmed, but the tensions never really went away. And the French Revolution was looming large on the immediate horizon. Now, I imagine you, dear listener, picturing the mob taking over the Parisian streets, And to set the record straight, the French Revolution that exploded in 1793 was not the rebellion in Victor Hugo's novel Les Mis. Although, see how bread's still there that's causing the problem even after the French Revolution? But salute to those of you that have seen this play on Broadway, or perhaps you've seen one of the films. I mention it because it's a pretty insignificant blip in French history that's resonated with the American imagination. Remember the crime? The protagonist, Jean Valjean, ended up in prison doing hard labor for almost two decades for stealing bread. Again, bread. Our gluten-laden friend. The apex of this play was set into the June Rebellion of 1832, when students and workers faced economic hardship along with being pushed over the edge by cholera epidemic. Cholera is a nasty intestinal disease that one gets from contaminated water. The rebels were squashed in this revolution by King Louis Philippe, and the Parisians upturned their noses, as only Parisians can, at the mob. The rebellion was a flash in the pan, but they managed to build up some barricades in the streets, if you can call them that, since they were made out of sapling trees that had been replanted from the last time they tried to build barricades. And the entire thing was mopped up in less than 24 hours, clean up on aisle five style. It would have been a forgotten uprising, except for Les Mis, which gilded the story and pulls on all the horse strings. So now that you know the reason for the season, what are you going to do to celebrate Bastille Day this year? And this year, the French government has banned the sale of fireworks, fearing riots on Bastille Day. And no, this one's not about bread. We have plenty of that in France. This is socially motivated riots due to the recent killing of a teen who was not armed during a traffic stop gone wrong. That's what the fear is. Is the band going to stop fireworks? I bet the farm, no. I mean, humans love patriotic gunpowder, legal or not. Will there be riots? Probably. Because fanning the flames of the riots are going to be attempts at the usual military parades, and that's a tinderbox of social unrest. 
But coming off the July 4th wave, it's really interesting to compare the French and American revolutions, since they're both based on the same philosophical movement, the Enlightenment. The French Revolution, in my humble historical opinion, is far more interesting, as it's more complex, more nuanced, and in a lot of ways more surprising, and more volatile, and more badass. As I think over it, an entire social system that was rooted in the Middle Ages gets overthrown, and no aristocracy is going to go down without kicking and screaming. If you're an aristocrat with feudal privilege, I can promise you that you didn't seek to settle in colonial America. What would you have to gain from that if your bread was buttered? You like what I just did right there? Back in Europe, there was no social system to overthrow in conjunction with the American Revolution. This explains why the French and American revolutions have very different trajectories. And boy, oh boy, do they have different endings. Think about it. The end product for the movements couldn't be more different. Washington versus Napoleon? And let me just add here that I, for one, are really curious to see what Joaquin Phoenix does with his new role as Napoleon. This is one of the first revolutions that we really met head on here at Christory. Even if it's just a snapshot, I'm 100% sure that we're going to meet many others, and we'll probably come back to the French Revolution as well. Because the French Revolution in the long term set up an enlightenment precedence for all kinds of revolutions and mass demonstrations, and how they tend to assault government buildings. Now, the mob is radicalized from below to push against the establishment, and that's an establishment that it no longer believes is legitimate to the point of frenzy, and passion bubbles over easily into violence in these crowd scenarios. And yes, many Americans were really surprised that the American Capitol was stormed on January 6th of 2021. I doubt that the French were surprised, and I know that many historians weren't either. It's important to remember here that the proverbial mob sees itself as legitimate, and depending on the outcome, if it's favorable to the mob, sometimes the historians see them as legitimate as well. Now, the storming of the Bastille is a good example of that because it has been judged legitimate. What happened at the U.S. Capitol was not a revolution because the before and the after are effectively the same. The election in this case was not effectively challenged to the point of actually overthrowing the establishment. So it's a failed revolt. At least at this point, it's still a failed revolt. I don't know about you, but all this talk of politics, and I'm ready to go back to Paris. On July 14th, let liberty, equality, and brotherhood ring around France. No heads on pikes in the 21st century. Rather, the day is marked by a sober and patriotic military parade that will move down the Champs-Élysées from the Arc de Triomphe, which was built in 1806, to honor France's triumphs under the empire builder Napoleon. And it's going to end in Paris's largest square at the foot of a 3,000-year-old obelisk, which was a gift from Egypt. The obelisk perfectly marks the spot where the guillotine had knocked so many heads off during the Reign of Terror, including the king, 
the Queen, Danton, Robespierre, many of the ones that you might know. If you find yourself in Coney Island rather than in Paris on this Bastille Day, the best you're going to be able to do is storm White Castle. French fries, even if they're Belgians, sound pretty on point. The French, at least half a million of them in recent years, will opt for a picnic at the massive park on the base of the Eiffel Tower where the baguette bread is still king. And one more point here. If you're trying to work off those carbs that you consume during a trip to Paris with some power walking, there is no more Bastille to visit on Bastille Day or any other day for that matter. It was torn down during the Revolution. Where it once stood is a column called the Spirit of Freedom, but this actually commemorates the 1830 Revolution. I know, another one. And as my students tell me, we are revolutioned out. Uh, But that revolution basically marks a lame duck king being replaced by one that was all fancy and related to Napoleon. But there are bits of the Bastille around Paris, from paving stones to foundations along the metro station. But you have to know where to look and you have to look really carefully. But that's what we do around here at Christory. We look carefully to see what other people don't see. So catch you next time, and thanks for coming along for the ride. Au revoir.